Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together with our brothers and sisters that have a desire to know more about you and your book of nature. I pray that as uh, we go through the course of these meetings, and uh, particularly this one, that you'll clear our minds and open our hearts to the message that you would have us receive, and that you might use me as a vessel to that end. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to just take a moment to thank the Dysinger family for doing such a marvelous job of helping to organize uh, this series of meetings here and to locate a facility and a venue that can accommodate all of us in relative comfort in this, in this rather brisk weather. Uh, it's wonderful to see so many people here and uh, I am grateful uh, beyond what I can express for the interest that's being shown in this topic of agriculture. Um, it's my conviction that agriculture was the first industry ordained for mankind, that when he placed Adam in the garden, his instruction to him to dress it and to keep it was not because a perfect garden needed a gardener, but that we needed the influence of that garden in our lives. And we heard and will hear uh, more evidence of that during the course of this time. I kind of came to the Adventist message and to the point of agriculture that I'm doing now uh, kind of through the looking glass. I kind of came through the other end. I was a, uh, a secular farmer for many years. I worked in large-scale uh, agriculture in the western states. I did crop consulting. I, I worked with some organic farmers, including uh, the Lundberg Rice family. But my primary, uh, my primary role was basically doing assessments for growers on how they could grow the most, the cheapest, the fastest. And that involved using a lot of chemistries and a lot of methods that I no longer subscribe to. Um, I've gone from uh, uh, actually uh, making cultural decisions on over 60,000 acres a year down to farming my own land now in West Virginia where we farm approximately three acres a year. And I can tell you that my quality of life is better than it ever has been. And I am so very, very thankful uh, that we have the opportunity still here in this country uh, to kind of re reverse the, the direction that we've been going in for the past two or three generations and that there is an entirely new generation of young people that have recognized that there is real opportunity in agriculture today. And I want to emphasize that. I spent the last three days up in Louisville, and I don't get on the road very much because farming is a very demanding uh, uh, lifestyle, uh, but I was compelled to go to the, uh, the Slow Money Conference that was recently uh, just concluded yesterday, actually, in Louisville, and that conference essentially was an assemblage of about 1,200 investors about a hundred farmers and a couple of hundred people that were involved in various stages of marketing and how to aggregate and distribute local farm produce. And the biggest problem that exists today in this country when it comes to high quality nutritious food is that the market so far exceeds the, 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 the production. There is a tremendous demand right now for small scale, high quality, nutritious agricultural food. And I want to encourage those of you that are here seriously considering this as an opportunity to support yourself and your family, that it is an opportunity 
uh, like I have never seen in my life. The, 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 the markets are crying for product right now, and I'll give you a few examples. We'll be talking about some of this a little bit later on this week. Uh, one of the aspects of growing crops is that it is uh, just as difficult, if not more so sometimes, to get that crop sold and distributed as it is to produce it. So growing food and sustaining yourself with a market farm is not just about how to produce a good quality product. A few years ago, my wife and I decided that we wanted to establish our own farm. For many, many years, I worked in consulting, I worked in large-scale farm management, I taught uh, the agriculture courses over at Heartland for a period of years, but we were ready to settle down, establish our own uh, small family uh, scale market enterprise, and we also wanted to provide some training opportunities. Now, the Lord knew what we needed long before we did, because after we purchased the farm that we decided we wanted, uh, a school building adjacent to the farm became available to us, and that's uh, what you see in this picture here is a, about a 24,000 square foot area uh, of, of school building that we now live in and make uh, the, uh, as, as, as the, the source for our, our, our housing for, for students that come and spend time with us too. But we were able to purchase this for $50,000. And you know, the spirit of prophecy has instructed us that if we're faithful and if we're, we're seeking to accomplish the Lord's will, we're going to find opportunities like this. So I know that in today's economy, with so many of us uh, having to, to work so hard just to make ends meet, that the, the prospect of buying land for a lot of people is really quite a challenge. That was one of the topics that was addressed at this conference that I just attended. But know in your heart, and I can tell you with confidence, because it has been true for me, that if you are faithful to the Lord in every way, he will be faithful to you as well, and he will make a way possible I had no idea. We were fleeing from an institution when we went to find our small farm. The last thing in the world I wanted was another large structure, a large building. But it has become invaluable to us in what we do today. Uh, we didn't know we needed it, but he did. So we took the playgrounds around that building. We used the classrooms for instructions for some of our training programs. We hold farmers markets in some of these classrooms in the winter months. We've been able to do a, a, a variety of things that we otherwise would not have been able to do uh, without this facility. These are just some, some shots of the building to give you size. But we uh, essentially uh, pulled out all the footings for the playground equipment that used to be there and surrounded this building with plants. That did something really startling, too, that we never anticipated. And what it did was it opened up doors for us with the community that we never imagined that we could open. We live in a very rural area in West Virginia. We're one of the few counties left in the country that has no stoplight, no four-lane highways, uh, no uh, fast food chains. So the people that are there are, are, are are close to each other. In fact, the root of, of, of about 90% of the people in the county that I live in come from just four families. So they all know each other. And when a stranger moves in, you're a stranger. And in a place like that, you can be a stranger for life very easily. But because they saw what we did with their school building, this building was built in 1950, and virtually all of our neighbors and, and, and that have become friends and other people that we know through the farmer's market have been through school in this building. So they see what we're doing with it, and guess what? They appreciate it. 
it's not just another eyesore on the landscape. It's not, you know, it hasn't been turned into low-income housing. And they're thankful that we're growing food because, hey, that's a pretty neat thing to do. So it's opened up a lot of avenues uh, for outreach and evangelism into the community, too. And you cannot, you cannot do agriculture in any way without affecting the people around you. Larry, was, Larry Lesher was speaking this morning about the intimate relationships that are developed when you're selling food to someone. That's a very uh, significant exchange because there's an exchange of trust that goes on there that you don't have when you're buying a new car or a lawnmower or, or a chainsaw. So people are open and willing to, uh, to get to know you as a person, and it gives us an opportunity like no other I can think of to be a true living witness. It is part of the medical missionary work, just as those of us that are engaged in serving the needs of others with their physical ailments, we're serving the needs of others by preventing those physical ailments, and they understand that and know that, and it's an extremely easy extension of that to, to engage in dialogue and to begin to talking with them about it. Now, since I'm basically coming from a world where I was trained in large-scale industrial agriculture, I particularly appreciate this statement from, uh, this is from uh, Selected Testimonies in, eight, uh, in August of 1896, and Ellen White wrote that agriculture should be advanced by scientific knowledge. And unfortunately today, because the last two generations particularly have been quite abruptly divorced from a connection to the soil, there are all kinds of winds of doctrine blowing in terms of how to conduct agriculture. This is one of the reasons why this conference is so very important, because we must recognize the connection between that book of nature and the Bible, and the only way that we can express that connection in a viable way with agriculture is if we do have an understanding that there are fundamental truths that must be abided by. And these fundamental truths must be based on scientific knowledge, not simple anecdotal evidence, not a simple opinion of one grower over another grower. If we're going to get to the core of truth about agriculture, as our pioneers got to the core of truth about the three angels' messages, we have to recognize that it has to be legitimately, scientifically established. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of that. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to come together here and to share information and to hold fast that which is good. We need to be Bereans when it comes to our study of agriculture, just as we do in the study of God's work. In our program, we have, have, have chosen to specifically provide practices and to demonstrate how we go about doing things that fulfill a few primary principles. These principles are that, A, it has to be scientifically valid. Now, that's not to say that we don't do some experimenting, but we don't share our experiments until they're proven. It has to be scientifically valid. What that means is that what what, what you, you apply, when you apply these principles, they work 100% of the time, not 99.9%, but 100% of the time. If I take my mouse here and drop it on the floor, what's going to happen? How many times? Every time, okay? The other is that we want to conduct our agriculture in a way that is the safest and most healthful for me and my family, for my crops, for my environment, and for the long-term security of my land 
for my children and my grandchildren. So we are environmental stewards in that regard, and it's not, uh, it's not a light responsibility to be a good environmental steward in today's world, but that is what we're called to. That means that when I grow my crops at the end of the year, what I want is a soil that is better conditioned to grow the next season crops than it was the year that I planted the crop that I just harvested. Now I want to talk to you for a moment too about scale. Scale is very important economically and in agriculture. And our scale is, can, can, can vary depending on what our perspective is. This is a view here of a 1,400 of a acre rose field that I used to manage. It was part of a 2,400 acre farm. Now, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And we used to have people that would come out for Sunday drives and take pictures of our, our fields. And we worked very hard out there and uh, sprayed a lot of toxic chemicals and other things out there that I would no longer want to admit to. But if we scale this down, it's still kind of pretty, isn't it? Because each of those plants on it has an individual rose. Each of those roses has a petal. And those petals, if you look at them through an electron microscope, have individual cells that are also quite pretty. So the point I want to emphasize here is that you can do a lot even on a small scale. Now, our farm in West Virginia is 120 acres. It's 124 acres, actually, with the school buildings in, included. But my wife, my daughter, and I basically only grow crops on about three of those acres. And that's what you see in this, this photograph here. The woods surrounding this are primarily still in their natural state. Uh, we, uh, we don't have a lot of, of, uh, of, of, of space that we're, that we're farming. But we do farm it very intensively. We do farm it scientifically, and we do work that soil very hard so that essentially what we do by crop rotations and cycling our crops through the season is that we end up turning that three acres into about 15 acres of actual production. And even on that three acres, last year we were able to generate an income of $67,000 from, from three acres with three of us working on it. And actually my daughter and I dominantly do most of the farm work. My wife does most of the marketing. And we'll get into talking about marketing, I think, later uh, in one of our later sessions. But marketing is a full-time aspect of, uh, of, of growing food, too. So if you're thinking that you're going to grow your food and someone's going to come and knock on your door and you'll be able to sell it all, that's probably not going to be the case. There's a, there's a lot of of effort involved in doing that too. Uh, if I can do it, anybody can do it. This is my philosophy. We live in a very eroded part of the Appalachians. The soils that we have are frankly lousy. They're not just not good, they're lousy. And it has taken a lot of work after hundreds of years of abuse to uh, manage these soils in a way that they can become productive, but they have become very productive in a very short period of time. We've been on this land for five years now, and by using an array of cover crops and appropriate crop rotations and infusing it with some other uh, uh, biological inputs in the way of composts. Uh, we've been able to take our organic matter, for example, from less than 1% in this field that you're looking at to over 4% in less than five years. That has some tremendous advantages to us and, and also uh, allows us an increase in crop production. 
this is that same field that you saw in the picture of the plowed ground. Uh, this was taken about three weeks ago. Uh, this is some late winter or late fall uh, broccoli, some Brussels sprouts, and a ring of cabbage around it there that's actually being harvested today by my loving wife and daughter who couldn't attend with me because they're freezing their fingers uh, trying to get this stuff off and, and to some of the schools that we supply. Behind that, we still have crops in the field as well. And, you know, one of the advantages of buying the old school building is we were uh, pretty high profile when we moved into the community. It was like, you know, instant uh, uh, recognition. Uh, I remember the first time I walked into the hardware store uh, after we had moved into this community and the owner come, came out and, and introduced himself to me and said, hello, Mr. Gregory. He knew who I was. And uh, because of that, it's opened a lot of doors in the community for us too. And because the awareness for small-scale agriculture is growing so profoundly, we have many uh, uh, folks that, that want to come and see what we're doing. Uh, this is a, a, a picture of a high school class from, uh, from Clay County High School, their vocational ag department that came out to uh, take a look at our farm and to see what we were doing. I was given an opportunity to uh, teach them for 10 weeks and then uh, through some grant money that we uh, located through the USDA, we actually set five of these students up with their own farming opportunities. We bought the fencing, we bought the electric fence chargers, we got them drip tape and, and the seeds and the plants and the supplies that they needed. All they had to put into it was their sweat equity. Now, like in all things, some were diligent and some weren't, but the, the one that was most diligent ended up making almost $9,000 on a field of sweet potatoes that year. And when he showed up in the parking lot that fall in his new pickup truck, he got the attention of his, his, other, uh, his other classmates, uh, pointing again to the fact that this is a viable industry. Now, it can't be done with uh, simple brute effort alone. This requires some thoughtful guidance. But just as Adam was guided in the garden by our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit is there to help guide us too. And with some fundamental understanding of the necessity to balance the soil chemistry properly and applying some simple principles of plant care, it's not a complex task, but it is a task where you will be learning every day. Just as someone can go to one of our evangelistic seminars and perhaps uh, glean some of the key points of the messages of the book of Daniel and Revelation, even after studying those books for many, many years, we can still learn more from our study, can't we? And that's an important point, too, to realize that the opportunities that we have in agriculture are, at this point, really quite untapped. I'm more uh, astonished at how little we know about soil microbiology, for example, the influences of various different strains of bacteria and fungi on plant growth, the symbiotic relationships that take place between the plants themselves. These are areas that are wide open for investigation and understanding. In 1903, Ellen White wrote that Agriculture should be the A, B, and C of the education taught in our schools. And we heard this morning that that first school is at home with mom, right? It breaks my heart to consider where we would be as a church today had we truly followed that counsel. Because rather than being a church that was holding this 
massive evangelistic outreach, we would have people beating a path to our doors to find out why it was that we weren't sick, that our plants were so healthy, and the land itself would be a testimony to our creator. Uh, to emphasize that it doesn't take big to do big things in this industry. Uh, this is my propagation area. This is less than half of a uh, 16 by 54 foot greenhouse in the area that you're looking at there. I produce about 10 to 15,000 plants uh, a year for transplanting into my garden. Uh, we start everything at our farm in plug trays that can be transplanted. This is partly for reasons of economy, but also for reasons of selection. When I take these plants and transplant them into six packs to grow on for another couple of weeks and then take those six packs and transplant them into the field, at each of those stages I have an opportunity to select so that if I don't have a really strong, vigorous plant, it doesn't go in the ground. And by doing this, that ensures that every square foot, I appreciated uh, Alan's uh, comment this morning about not measuring in acres, but measuring in square feet, each square foot has a viable, productive plant that is going to return something to you. And also, by doing this, we can also s accelerate our, our period of time between uh, crop successions. As soon as one crop comes out, it's not unusual for us to replant that same bed the very same day. And this accelerates our, our capacity to produce four, five, even six crop cycles uh, a, a year in, in some of our beds, which is very efficient for us because instead of having to care for 15 acres, we simply have to focus on the three acres and do things successively. Uh, these are some of the pictures behind our school building. Now, this is a summer garden crop, but I also have some photos here I want to show you of our, our winter production because actually, you know, we, we try to, to, to talk about times when we can organize having this meeting, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of the, I'm, I'm one of the weird ones because I'm busy all the time. I, you know, folks come and say, hey, Bob, you know, the weather's getting cold, there's snow on the ground, things must be slowing down. Well, not really, but that's, that's by choice, not by necessity. Um, we also are very involved in working with the public on trying to encourage small-scale agriculture. There's a large uh, movement uh, that I have been involved with over the course of the last four or five years with the West Virginia Department of Agriculture, the USDA Department of Agriculture, and this particular group is the Northeast SARE Group, the Sustainable Agriculture Resource and Education arm of uh, the USDA, where we're looking for solutions to some of the problems that we have to produce more food locally. You know, this is one of the, the, the reasons that all those folks met up in Louisville earlier this week was because it's been recognized that this is a national security issue. It's not just a health issue. It's not just a matter of, of finding good quality food to eat. But the, because of the globalization of agriculture today, any disruption in that supply chain poses almost an immediate hazard. And when I say almost immediate, I'm talking 72 hours for virtually 90% of our society today. And uh, so there's a lot of engagement here about what we can do about that. And one of the solutions that I postulate is small-scale farming, small-scale market farms and finding ways where we can aggregate our produce 
uh, together to meet broader markets so that we can supply school systems, nursing homes, hospitals, uh, as well as the general public with good quality locally produced and ripened food. <clears throat> uh, my wife, Lanita, prepared a vegan meal for these folks while they were there. Uh, we didn't tell them it was a vegan meal, and uh, all we enjoyed were, the, were, were their expressions of gratitude afterwards because it, it was truly a fabulous meal from, from stuff that we had produced right on the farm. Um, when I say intensive, this is kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, we grow in, in five-foot beds outdoors and uh, in, the, in, the, in the high tunnels. They're a little bit uh, closer than that, but uh, we, we try to squeeze the most out of every square inch in the garden, which lends itself to a lot of different advantages in terms of weed control strategies, uh, pest control, and that kind of thing, too. So we'll get into more of that in some of the, uh, the later breakout sessions. Uh, it's just another picture of the farm. This was in late September. And uh, this is what it looks like inside our high tunnels. Now, our high tunnels are small, and they're small for a reason. Uh, we don't want to use any power ventilation, and I don't like using roll-up sides on a high tunnel because it shortens the life of the plastic. Uh, so uh, our high tunnels are small enough so that if we do get a heavy snow load, I can reach the top with a push broom and pull it off. Uh, they're uh, short enough so that I get adequate ventilation just with the natural uh, breeze moving from one end of the tunnel to the other to, to evacuate the air. That's why we have five small ones instead of one large one. And when I get home, I've got two more high tunnels sitting on a trailer ready to, to be assembled that we'll be building this year. Um, I'm, 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 I'm almost ashamed to say this, but I'm actually going to make money building my own high tunnels. There's a program that is sponsored by the NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, in many parts of the country today where they are trying to encourage people to grow food. And this didn't happen because I'm a commercial grower. This is available even to just homeowners. Uh, but they will help you um, finance and essentially pay you to put up up to 2,000 square feet of high tunnel. Uh, it was my responsibility to make the, the purchase of the high tunnels, but what they allocate for me in putting those up is actually going to pay me to erect them. So I get paid for building my own structures. Uh, their only requirement is that I keep some records for them for five years uh, about what is grown inside those tunnels. Other than that, there's no strings attached. And uh, at that five, end of that five-year period of time, I can use them for whatever I want to. So that's certainly an opportunity for some of you out there, too. There are a lot of sources of support and uh, ways of developing creative financing and developing uh, folks that can help you uh, get your feet off the ground if you demonstrate that you are truly committed or willing to stick it out and uh, want to produce food today. Um, I'd be happy to talk with some of you later about some of those opportunities. The other thing that I want to emphasize is when it comes to growing crops, throw your growing calendars away. You'll go broke if you don't. We make the bulk of our income this time of year, right now and also in the early spring, in February and March, before the farmer's markets typically even open. Now, we do the summer gardening too, but summer gardening is no fun. Anybody that's been out there in July and August knows that with humidity and heat and bugs and weeds and the grasses, uh, it's no fun. Uh, but gardening this time of year is, is to me, the most fun because it's also the most profitable too. But we're dealing with a lot fewer problems this time of year. 
This is what the farm looks like right now. We use a combination of high tunnels and low tunnels. Those low tunnels can be very productive for you. Uh, this is a picture of some lettuce, uh, some romaine lettuce that survived our last polar vortex. We got down to 13 below the night before I took this picture. And I expected to, c to come out and find everything pretty much frozen and desiccated. And those plants are frozen solid. If you hit them with your finger, they shatter. But uh, uh, once it warmed up and they thawed out, we were still able to, 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 to market this lettuce. And that's with a very simple structure of some, uh, some electrical conduit and some frost cloth over it. Uh, carrots, uh, same, same thing there. So uh, making use of some of these systems, we use tunnels within tunnels too, which is also helpful. We had some seedlings that uh, were just coming up, some beets and, and radishes and things for the school, and we just put a tunnel in the tunnel to help give them a little more protection. But anyway, these are just some glimpses of, of what we do. Uh, there's food all over in that picture. You just can't see it. Uh, once, once the snow uh, melts, then, then it all becomes apparent again. The high tunnels are full. There's some things in the beds there. Uh, also, uh, that particular picture, we have beets and, and carrots that are in the ground under the snow that we also harvested after after things thawed out. And I want to emphasize too that you don't have to be big to do this. This first row of cucumbers that you're looking at in this picture here is a bed that's five feet wide and 50 feet long. We harvested 1,100 pounds of cucumbers off of that bed. It's astonishing what the earth can produce. And any of these large multinational corporations that are telling you that we've got to grow genetically modified crops to feed the world, they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about because the amount of food that can come from a very small piece of land is really quite astonishing. It's quite astonishing. And for those of, it, those of us that, that, that do it according to God's methods, I think there's another rule that comes into play, and that is that you can never grow just enough for yourself. You know, you never meet just your own objectives. Um, it's difficult to develop markets, but almost always you're going to find that you can meet your markets and you're still going to have produce to give away. It's just, it's, it's just a law of, of, of increasing returns, I like to call it. Um, we do propagating on the farm, too. We've, we've got berries and fruit trees as well. We've uh, got a small orchard of about 40 tree, 42 fruit trees, and we've got uh, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, and grapes planted. And uh, most of those we've, we've propagated ourselves right on the place. Uh, these are some of our blueberries. These are two years old, uh, starting to to get ready to produce, and we also do some ornamentals too. I think it's important that for those of us that are looking uh, for sources of income particularly to realize that the public will pay much more for something that looks pretty than they will for something that's good for their health. That's a sad reality, but it's true. But by adding a, a, a component of ornamentals into your operation, you can find that you can get a very good return on that also. I think I'm just about out of time. I wanted to just leave you with a couple of pictures here. I should back up, and for those of you that haven't met her, this is my wife, Lanita, and uh, one of our, our micro draft horses. We have a pair of halflingers that are the joy of my daughter. Uh, we haven't used the halflingers for our farming operation yet, but they're fully capable of it, and the only reason we don't is because they don't have equipment for them to pull, uh, but they're a wonderful asset, too, to have on the farm. We do a lot of canning, freezing, uh, root cellaring, and, and drying, and it's, uh, it, it's an amazing thing for me to stand here today and, and, and know that I am fully secure in my food supply. I don't have to worry about a thing. 
And one of the things that I emphasize in my class is I think one of the problems that we see in society today is that eating food is an extremely important activity. I mean, it's something we need to engage in at least every couple of days or so. But most people in society today have no idea where their food comes from, let alone how to produce it. And that engenders inside of us an innate insecurity that if it is not met, I think can manifest itself with all kinds of aberrant behaviors that we see in society. Farming is also a great way to get to know your friends and neighbors. Lenita and I were out planting this field. We had about 3,000 transplants to put in one Sunday morning. Uh, neighbor drove by, saw us out there, stopped, said, hey, can I help? A few minutes later, another neighbor stopped by, hey, can I help? Another one came by and said, hey, what are you doing out there? Can I help? And by the end of the day, we had the field planted, and everybody had a great time. So it's a great opportunity to build community, too. And this is something that we should not overlook. All right? You know, we can... Uh, I, I knew more about agriculture than anybody at the local farmer's market. We knew more about the Bible and health than anybody in our community. But if I came into that community with that attitude, I would have failed miserably. So we made ourselves vulnerable. And we have learned from them as much as we have taught them. And in that process, you develop trust and sharing. And I believe that's the way that this gospel commission is going to be fulfilled. is heart to heart, hand to hand, eye to eye and elbow to elbow. All right. Thank you very much. Do you, do you get the uh, reoccurring theme here that it's about a lot more than just growing your own food and or even growing food for others? It's about outreach. It's about ministry. And what an incredible opportunity, so many opportunities. And... I wish Bob's place was big enough to hold this conference because we could learn a lot from going there. I want to introduce my family. We were, we were supposed to be doing this all together, and we are going to do it together, but I'll just be honest with you right up front. We, didn't, we ran out of time to practice it and to get it all together, so... Um, we're going to we're going to get through it, and we're going to give a view of our farm. Where's Jonathan? You're here somewhere, I think. Family, come up. Let me just introduce. Is is Zach here? I'm not sure. If Zach is videoing in another session. So we've got uh, four fifths of our children here. Kirsten, well, this is my wife, Pam, my helpmeet, and Kirsten is our oldest, and then Jonathan, Kirsten's 22, almost 23, Jonathan's 21, uh, Joshua is 18, and Caleb is 11. And Zach is 17. And Zach is 17, <laughs> Zach's the one missing. So thank you all, and I will call you up just. Okay, this is my help meet. She's going to stay right here. Just a quick history, and I wish we had time to tell, give our testimony of how the Lord led us into this, because as I said last night, we... 
we have no background in this. We were starting from ground zero. But the Lord led us into it in the fall of 1998. It was really, we were teachers, and he called us out of teaching and into farming. Um, we thought, on paper, we had it all figured out that we could earn enough money. We were going to live simply, but we could earn enough on an acre of strawberries to provide for our family. <laughs> Did that work? No. <laughs> you know, hind hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> we were really... We were very naive. Really naive. Farmers, it always looks good on paper, but... And I'll just warn you, because I'm the same way, farmers will always tell you the best case scenario. I, I, can, I was just thinking about that because I'm going to have to share about the finances. And that's, farmers always paint the biggest, the prettiest picture because they love what they do. And they know that if they don't make it look good, you wouldn't even have a chance to experience what they've experienced. The hard and the easy, the good and the bad. But we're a pretty passionate group. Thank you. That's good insight. Um, so we, we did that. We, we bumbled along for five years, and we had some success. The Lord blessed, and we had some incredible PR from the Tennessean, which is the greater Nashville newspaper. We were on the front page. You were talking about that this morning, front page of their local thing. So anyway, the Lord blessed, but we still, we really weren't making it. We were, we were struggling, and it was the Lord that sustained us. We can't give him enough credit because he did it, um, but we realized, there's so much I want to say, but in, in, in the spring of 2003, we lost basically our whole crop. To, it rained the whole month of May, and it was devastating. And we had just invested a bunch of money in the farm to try to make it really viable. And it was just, but the Lord brought good out of it. And one of those good things is that we started diversifying. And it was really, uh, it was, uh, What's the word? I'm, it was a desperate move because we didn't have enough money to get through the year to the next strawberry season. And it was too late to plant summer stuff. So we started a winter CSA. Um, through the inspiration of Elliot Coleman, we figured if he can do it in Maine, we can do it. And so we started that fall with 12 members. And it's grown from there. So you just tell a little more of the history here. <laughs> so Edwin's family, John's brother, joined us in 2006. We had just, we were just starting to feel like we had figured out the winter production. We had gone through two full winters without having to stop. Um, no, maybe just one. So it was starting to come. We kind of were starting to feel like we have some, some, uh, some control over what we're doing, maybe. I don't know. And then in um, 2011, we branched out and we added where most people start. John and I really are 
good at doing things the hard way. So we, we started where no one starts and we ended where everyone starts. So in the summer of 2011, we, we decided our farm was, had a great farm presence in the winter. We wanted to expand it. Edwin continued with the winter production and our family branched out and has done the summer production for the last three years. Um, so that was in 2012, we divided those two seasons. And it's, been a, it's given us a lot of, um, it's, we just have a whole year round presence in the farming market around Nashville without killing ourselves like poor Bob is doing year round. Well, he's, he knows what he's doing more than we do. See, we, we have to regroup ourselves at the end of the season and say, okay, let's catch our breath and try this again. Um, so our operation is, we're, we kind of have a split operation in many ways. We do about two and a half acres of field crops, and that's with tractor and, you know, tractor implements. And now let me emphasize, at this point, we are talking about our half of the farm. You know, in other words, Edwin and Jennifer do their thing in the winter, and, and so this two and a half acres is what we're doing in the spring and summer. Um, and then we have about three quarters of an acre of intensive beds. These are 30-inch wide beds that um, we use basically all hand tools or the walking tractor, the BCS on. And that includes about uh, 15,000 square feet of hoop house space. One thing that I just wanna say here so I don't forget is that um, I think any farmer will tell you invest in hoop houses because the quality of produce you get out of a hoop house mm -hmm. is just so superior. The, the, the greens are more tender. They're, you don't have the, the dirt splash on them and everything, they're much cleaner. It's just a win-win. And of course, if you're winter growing, it's so much easier to, you can enjoy working in a hoop house. We're certified organic, um, you know, we could spend a lot of time debating that. We've chosen that for now as a, as a marketing thing. And also, Bob talked a little bit about grants and things available. In our state here in Tennessee, um, there's a lot of money available for farmers, um, matching grants. And if you're certified organic, it's a 50-50 matching grant. And so that more than pays for our certification. We don't have any um, idea that we're going to keep that forever. You know, as the regulations increase, at some point we're going to drop it because we have our customer base and, uh, you know, our customers trust us. Labor force, you know, that's a little hard to measure because we... You know, some of our children are still schooling and, and um, they've got their own things they're doing, but this is kind of what I have estimated. One really full-time, three almost full-time, and, and you know, full-time farming is different than full-time office job. You understand that. <laughs> um, 
and in two halftime, and again, we've got quotation marks there. Uh, halftime sometimes looks more like full time. So we're blessed with a large labor force with our family. We couldn't do it without them. Also, I, I don't want to fail to mention Nick. Um, Nick has been with us for two and a half years now. Started out as an apprentice and stayed on. And we really have come to rely on his help. Markets, honey, just say something about markets. <laughs> well, we do a CSA, and this year we had just over 70 members. And some of them get weekly and some get every other week. Um, farmers markets, we cut back to two this year, I guess last yeah. year. Um, that was a principled decision, and God blessed that principled decision. And we made more on our two markets than we had made on our three markets. So God is, is in the business of blessing us for principled decisions. Um, we sell to restaurants, but mainly those are pretty high-end restaurants. They pay us a premium price for our produce. This is unrehearsed, in case you hadn't noticed or caught on. <laughs> well, honey, have them come on. Joshua, come up here, and I'll just bring you on. Joshua deals with our wholesaling. Kirsten, you come, because you're next on the stacking. Just tell them how that works for you. <laughs> so we don't really grow for wholesale. We haven't done too much, like growing a lot of extra just for wholesale. Um, but we have, you know, certain times in the season we'll have extras of, you know, kale and beets and stuff like that. Um, the main wholesale that we've used is a website it's a guy in Nashville has started an organization called Nashville Grown, and he has a website where he has quite a few, probably 20 or 30 farmers, and they'll post um, any extras they have, and then the chefs will order through him, and then he'll come and pick up at the farmer's markets everything that we have for him. So it's a pretty simple way to sell wholesale through um, the restaurants and stuff, and you don't necessarily have to grow a certain amount for them. It's just your extras. You can post as much or as little as you have, and it just goes through that. And here comes picks it up. So it's not um, not and a lot of like not a lot of work for us. Extra work. Um, and also to the restaurants, it's mainly it's worked out really nice for us. After our markets, we've got a couple restaurants that we'll go to and take them our extra stuff and they'll, you know, tell us what they like and we can sell our leftovers from markets to them, which has worked pretty well through the season until our chef moved, but. <laughs> our best, yeah. And we'll, we'll be talking more about marketing tomorrow, so we won't spend more time on that, but, um, I'd like to talk for a minute, or I'm going to have my children talk about a, a concept that uh, Joel Salatin, some of you know who Joel Salatin is, um, calls stacking. And that is rather than trying to just grow more of 
vegetables, you know, trying to provide enough income for all your children and as they branch out, just growing more of a few things. The idea is to diversify with your enterprises on the same land base. And so we're just gonna talk about a few of those that we have been doing. And we're just getting into this more as our children are maturing. Yes, well the farm is a wonderful place for, you know, growing up, ever since we were little, we were always starting little businesses. And the farm is a great incubator for those. You know, if you're going to farmer's market, it's very easy to take along, like Caleb has crocheted washcloths. And so we'll just take those along. And so the farm is a great way for um, young people to cultivate their interests. Um, we've had a lot of, I've had a lot of varying interests through the years. And um, so it's a great way to be able to expand and make the farm uh, a broader, more variety to it. This year, I decided I was going to grow some more flowers, and I was really inspired going to a conference earlier in the year. And their point was, because it seems like flowers is a, in, is a more dispensable thing compared to produce, but their point is people are always getting married, they're always dying, and they're always having to make up. So flowers are indispensable, and I have found that to be very true this summer. So apart from working full-time with vegetable productions, I just put in a few beds of flowers, and I was quite shocked with taking a few bouquets to market how much I was able to make this summer. And so flowers is a great way to expand and add to your produce stand. It attracts people to beauty. Um, so add flowers to your... Well, I earned close to $1,200 just taking a few bouquets a week to market off of just a couple beds. And so I couldn't pour much of my time and energy into that because I was um, fully invested with the produce. It's hard to, it's hard to have so many things going on. Um, so I, I work full-time on the farm with the produce, mainly doing marketing and the more communication side of the farming. So flowers is a great way um, to add to your add to what you already are doing or wanting to do on the farm. Another thing that I have done is making soap and selling bath and body products. Another great way, and if you're going to farmer's market already, it's just something you can take with you. And so I'll just make, this is something I do in the winter. I'll make soap in the winter or other products, and then I, I can take them through the summer to the markets. So there's, there's endless opportunities for young people on the farm to expand their interests, find what, what their God-given talents are, where their interests lie, and great ways to earn money. It's great. Once you get children going, they're very entrepreneurial, and that's sort of been our goal. So I wish Jonathan could come up here, but John says we're running out of time, so we're just going to say it quick. Jonathan started, and Joshua, a, a business of doing maple syrup, tapping maple trees, Sticky Brothers maple syrup, and that has that has um, been a great little business, and it actually has brought into the whole family because it's a hard business to do with just a small workforce. Um, but it has been a lot of fun. And this year, Jonathan went to a a young farmers conference in New York and was inspired with the idea of maple sap. So this year, we took to our markets frozen maple sap and I tell you it was a very hot item once people got the taste for it they loved it 
the original flavored drink. Chickens. Um, do you want to say something quick? Come quick. Well, I've always enjoyed animals, and so chickens are one thing I've been interested in for a while, but um, the farm wasn't really necessarily wanting to get into them, I guess, and they're probably smarter for it, but <laughs> I've tried. And I got, about a year ago, I got 100, I think it was about 110 chicks, and by the time they were laying, I had maybe 80 left, um, and... So we went through the through the summer with those. Um, I bought I bought some more from a guy near that. It was a bit of a learning experience. I got um, they were partially grown. They were like a couple months old, and I brought them into the flock, and they brought sickness into the flock. And so for about two months, almost, I haven't really been been getting eggs so they're just in the last two or three weeks they've just started picking up again so that was a bit of a learning curve but they've they're a huge hit at market and I could sell probably 50 plus dozen a week at our markets so I'd like to yeah I can sell them for six dollars a dozen and I've got there's another guy who does organic and he sells his for seven dollars a dozen and Nobody seems to think it's an unreasonable price. <laughs> but I would. We, we do use organic feed. They just aren't certified organic. We haven't gone there. Um, and, you know, we could, we could probably debate doing eggs. Um, you know, we don't eat them ourselves. But I guess at this point our thought is it's better than what they're eating now. And so we're, we're taking them on a journey. And it's, you know, I, I, I think Joshua is going to figure out how to do it and make money at it. Well, he we're loves them. He loves them. He goes out there and all those hens just flock to him. He's like the big mama hen. It, it is a lot of fun to have animals. We take the compost out there and I love to just sit for a few minutes and watch them. It, it brings a lot of joy. Uh, Zach does some bees. And, you know, these are all just complimentary things. We couldn't do it all. That's the point. But they're, they're things that, that just add to what we're doing on the farm. Oh, just, you know, other options. Caleb is our little woodworker. You know, mushrooms, breads, jams, jellies, fruit trees. I mean, it could go on and on and on, but I have to bring, I have to be the one to bring the financial end of it. I, I don't like to have to do that, but <laughs> that's my job. So it's, it's always a little bit humbling, but God, I, I just want to say this, our, God has blessed our family and stretched the dollars in ways that you can't imagine. So if I tell you that our family lives on basically $30,000 a year, most people would say, how is that possible? And if you had any clue of how much company we have and how many people we feed, God knows how to stretch the dollars. So this is, um, this is a bit of 
kind of the way that our income is divided, we get about, John did this, this off the top of his head, but it's a pretty good guess. I was pretty impressed, honey. So about 40% of our income comes from CSA. That's the weekly boxes that we deliver to people. About 55% of our income comes from farmers markets. That's, yeah, that's kind of, that's probably just right too. And then between restaurants and wholesale, 5% max. We really don't do much wholesale. It's, um, you have to grow a lot more, you have to sell a lot more. And we find that we've done pretty well just with the direct market to our customers, besides the fact that we really like the direct one-on-one -on -one with our customers. So the actual numbers, this year, our CSA brought in 37,643. Farmers markets were 35,792. That's with two markets. One of them, one of those markets was two-thirds of that. And one of them, I, I go in front of Whole Foods, and that's not as good a market as our real farmers market. And then we separated strawberries out. That's still one of our, that's really our only real cash crop. And that's not, that number is not very reflective because we put a lot of strawberries in our CSA. And those are just strawberries that we actually sold at farmer's market or from the farm. So the gross income that our family um, took in off of the farm is, as you can see, 86,000, almost 87,000. So when you figure, we, we figure that for farming, you can really only count on 50% to take it takes about 50% to run the farm, 40 to 50. So we're looking to get it lower, but that's, we're still, that's the honest reality of our last summer. We're still investing in, in infrastructure, trying to get it to where we want it to be. And, um, you know, basically we're earning what we need, but we're trying to increase the pay of our children because they're the future and you know someday we want to turn it over to them if they want it and so uh, that's that's where we're headed we want to just keep paying them more and more that's our goal profit sharing just quickly important tools and as i told you we kind of have two two different systems the field work we have a tractor with a front-end loader is just invaluable. The front-end loader is the best tool on the farm, at least tractor tool. And then, like Larry said, we have a reciprocating spader, a great tillage tool, very expensive. That's the downside. They're Italian, um, but do a very good job of tillage. Flail mower, I'm using more and more. I really appreciate a flail mower because it chops things up and leaves them in place rather than a bush hog, which windrows them to the side. And um, we do also have an Alice Chalmers G that we bought from somebody. They had retrofitted it to electric. And so we use that for cultivating on the field scale. But in, in the intensive beds, we use a BCS, and I hope you've looked at those with a rotary harrow that was new for us this year. We're gonna try to get um, Richard to demonstrate one tomorrow mm. down at the little garden plot. 
that really revolutionized things. I wish I had more time to talk about that. But some tips we got from this Market Gardener, the Market Gardener book. I just want to promote that again because that really was a huge blessing this year, using tarps. Um, we'll talk more about that maybe in the weed control. Uh, wheel hoe, if you don't know what a wheel hoe is, you need to do some research, incredible tool. Broad fork, quick cut greens harvester. If you're growing baby greens at all, I highly recommend it. I'm a little biased, but um, and in closing, just some advice to others. Make sure you're doing this not because it looks romantic and, and, and exciting. Make sure you're doing it because you feel God is calling you to it. Because then when the hard times come, and they will come, you can say, you know, um, God called us and he's not going to hang us out to dry. Get experience with others who are already doing it. I can't emphasize that enough. Don't just go out there and reinvent the wheel. Go learn from people who are doing it successfully. That's the best education you can have. Read all you can from the experts. I'm a big reader. I believe in reading books. And again, you're, you're not going to agree with everything, but any tips you can gain means you don't have to to make those mistakes on your own. So we've got lots of good books here. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That was our mistake with the strawberries. We, we were trying to make a living on one crop. You know, we, we have crop failures every year, but we've got so much diversity that it doesn't hurt us. And, and diversify not only in crops but also in seasons you know we do spring and summer this year our spring season was incredible it was the best we've ever had our summer season was not so good but it balances out start small if you can so you make small mistakes be realistic with your expectations you know you're not going to go out there and make thirty forty thousand dollars your first year unless you've apprenticed on some really good farms and you know what you're getting into so be realistic but the potential is there like Bob said there's a lot of potential right now and honey you get the last word <laughs> seek first his kingdom um, service and I, I can, this is really one of my passions. I will say, when I go to farmer's market, I just pray, Lord, give me opportunity to bless. Give me opportunity. And when I'm at the farmer's market and I'm tempted to think about, wow, it's not a very good financial day, the Lord always reminds me, you're not here for the finances. You're here to bless. And I could tell you so many, the Lord gave me so many amazing experiences this, this summer much more than I've had in the past. And so um, it, it truly, it's a ministry. It's our family's ministry, and the Lord provides for our daily needs and our sustenance from this ministry. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.